0: Uh, We're going to be picking up in the book of Matthew, so why don't you turn there? We're going to pick up where we left off. We had talked last about uh, Christ, and uh, of course, the whole series is on the life of Christ, and Christ is um, doing some pretty amazing things when it comes to his miracles, when it comes to his messages. You know, when I was younger, I would look a lot at the miracles and be heavily encouraged and influenced by the miracles. And then as I got older, I paid more attention to what he said. I'm not diminishing what he did. What he did was some amazing stuff. But what he said was pretty profound. And we left off last time talking about what he had said, Matthew chapter 15, um, to a young woman. Well, we don't know that she's young. To a woman who comes to Jesus in verse 21, and this woman is not a Jew, and she states, I need help. My young daughter is possessed of a demon. And Jesus, of course, gives the statement that, uh, well, I'm not here for you. I'm I'm paraphrasing. I'm not here for you. I'm here for the Jews. And she says, well, you know, I understand that you're here for the Jews. I get that. But um, will you help me anyways? And And he says, it's not appropriate for me to give bread to those that are not my children. He actually says, uh, is it okay to give it to the dogs? Not only did he say, not my children, but should I be giving the, the bread that belongs to the children to the dogs? Referring to her. And she responds very calmly and very wisely and states, well, even the dogs can essentially benefit from the leftover bread, from the, from the bread that falls on the ground. Even the dogs can benefit from that. And uh, Jesus, you know, and I I stated last week, I feel like he probably smiled at that point and grants her her request and and commends her for her faith. I am not going to reteach that section. I spent a good portion of time last Wednesday on that. But if you are intrigued by what you just heard and what reason Christ could have had to respond to her in such a manner, uh, originally calling her, at least associating her with the dogs... And then stating that she's not worthy to receive of his miracles. uh, I would encourage you to go back to last Wednesday's Bible study and listen to that. We're going to move on now. And uh, let's go ahead and pick up here in verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. Jesus Christ was very concerned about the spiritual condition of the world. That's why he came, the spiritual condition. Christ did not come to the world to feed the world. Christ did not come to the earth to clothe the world. Christ did not come to the world to fix the politics of the world. Christ came his first time to seek and to save the lost. But while he was there, why not feed and clothe? He, he didn't address politics nearly as much as I think a lot of modern pastors would have preferred him to. I guarantee you, not as much as the apostles would have preferred him to address politics. But he did occasionally deal with the the leadership. But you know what? The politics Christ dealt with more than anything. It wasn't the politics of the Roman government he dealt with. It was politics, but what politics? religious politics, the politics of the Pharisees, the politics of the Jews. So yes, he did deal with politics. You you want to talk about politics? Let's have that conversation. Let's have the conversation of the politics of the church. Now, I'm saying that because we are the church now. At that time, there was no church, right? There were synagogues where they were meeting. There were not fellowships of believers worshiping Christ as we do today. But what the equivalent of the church would have been the synagogues, and he dealt with the politics of these synagogues, these, these spiritual leaders who were lording over the people. That is the conversation he wanted to have as it relates to politics. And I think we have lost sight of the heart of Christ. Ultimately, his heart are the souls of men. But that doesn't mean he overlooks their physical and emotional needs. And we as Christians must keep our focus on the souls of men. We can feed people, we can clothe people, but if they still die and go to hell, we've only done them some good and possibly a lot of harm if we haven't lived and spoken truth while providing for their needs. So Christ didn't necessarily heal someone and then lead them to the Lord. He didn't heal a blind man and then rescue them from their sin. He didn't feed people and then uh, give them the gospel immediately afterwards. But Christ lived and taught truth throughout his ministry. I would imagine on a daily basis. He was living, obviously daily, and I think daily teaching truth. So it's not that he attached a message to every act of goodwill. He didn't hand out a tract, a gospel tract, as he handed out bread. He just lived truth and taught truth And then as part of that truth, he also lived and taught love because the truth of scripture is love is also strongly the heart of God. In fact, Christ says you can't can't obey the law and the prophets if you don't do the first two and greatest commandments. That's to love God and love others. All other law and prophets are accomplished through those first two and greatest commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And so Christ does love always. Christ does love every day, and we need to do the same. And I have shifted my philosophy of the whole outreach only to give a gospel track. Uh, show compassion only to get a word of, of uh, outreach or gospel or, or truth in the conversation as you're reaching the people. But then I realized that was a form of manipulation. It was a form of deception. Uh, it wasn't true, pure uh, unconditional love. It was love attached to, now I did this, I expect you to listen to me as I speak to you. And I don't see Christ doing that either. Christ did not require them to stay for a message before or after he fed them. He had already been teaching them. They're now wand- watching him as he's, as he's saying amazing things, as he's healing the blind and the sick. Verse 31 uh, allowing the dumb to speak, the maimed to behold, the lame to walk, the blind to see. They glorified God, and now they're hungry. There's nothing for them to eat nearby. And so Jesus Christ is, uh, guys, we're going to be, we're skipping that one for now. We're going to Matthew chapter uh, 15. Jesus Christ says, I want to do something about their physical need. And so he says to his disciples, uh, we have nothing they, they have nothing to eat and I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. Verse 33, And his disciples say to him, Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? You might be thinking, can you blame the disciples? They're in the wilderness. Christ doesn't have food. Uh, there's a lot of people. How are they supposed to be fed? But I want to remind you, this is not the first time a situation like this has occurred. What other circumstance where the disciples in almost deja vu, where Christ says, they're they're hungry, let's feed them. And the disciples responded the first time this happened. We don't have anything. We don't have enough money. Even if there was bread to buy, we don't have the money to buy it with. Here we are at a later time. This is not the feeding of the 5,000. This is the feeding of the 4,000 happened after the feeding of the 5,000. By the way, the feeding of the 5,000 specifically tells us 5,000 men plus women and children. This one just says about 4,000. I assume includes women and children. This is a smaller group of people. Christ already performed a miracle on a massive scale of, of easily five to 10,000 people and saw them fed with a young boy's lunch. And then when Christ says, we're going to feed these people too, the disciples' response is, again, How? How are we going to feed them? What would your response be? I can't wait to see another miracle. Oh boy, we're going to be full again after today, right? You think that would be your response. You like to assume that would be your response. Why? Because you know the end of both stories. And since you know the end of the first story, and since you know the end of the second story, in hindsight, you say, This is how I would respond, because if I saw the first miracle, I would assume Christ is capable of the second miracle. And yet, how many times has God performed a miracle in your life? How many times has God done something amazing in your life? And then something similar comes up, a similar problem, that would require a similar solution. And if Christ brought a solution To the first problem you have, why are you lacking faith for the solution of the second problem? When I say that, I say that to my own shame. I say that to myself. I say that to my younger self so many times. God had done amazing things. And then when there was an issue similar to the first one, I wonder, will God do an amazing thing again? And then he does. And the third time it happens, some months or years later, will God do an amazing thing again? Let me give you some examples. I'll I'll give you a specific example as it relates to this ministry. When I first became the principal of Mid-State Christian Academy, I realized whatever knowledge I had regarding leadership uh, was not enough to prepare me to be the principal of Mid-State Christian Academy of any school. It's definitely not this one in New England. Uh, I had some experience of leadership, but not what was needed for this position. And I made a lot of mistakes over the years, the first years. made a lot of mistakes. I hurt a lot of people. I pushed away a lot of families, and both staff and students and their families both exited the ministry for a variety of reasons, including poor leadership choices on my part. That was just unfortunately how it was. I had to learn as I went. But there was was a big part of being a leader of, uh, of a Christian school that I hadn't really considered before, and that was you don't just lead employees. You have to recruit employees. I had never recruited employees before. I was, when I became the principal of Midstate Christian Academy, I was 28 years old. I had never recruited employees. I would never needed to recruit employees and definitely didn't need to be recruiting, you know, two, three, four at a time of specialized uh, folks who can, you know, only certain type of people can do this job and want to do it for what I was willing to pay them, able to pay them. It's not like I'm recruiting people and paying them, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm recruiting people, and at that point, when I started, they were making $18,000. I had to recruit someone to leave their home state and come into Connecticut and work for a private school, teaching kids, many of which who don't want to be here, for $18,000. I did not have the skill sets necessary for that. And uh, I figured out real quick I was in trouble. And so I would stress, are we going to have the teachers we need? I naively believe that once a teacher started here, like, they wouldn't leave unless they got married or, you know, some major event happened in their life and then they would go. So I thought, okay, great, I recruited a third grade teacher, I recruited a, you know, whatever teacher, at least I don't have to recruit that teacher again for some time. That was not true. And so I realized after the second year, I'll be recruiting teachers every summer of my position here until it's given to someone else or I walk away. I'm going to be recruiting leaders because there are other reasons why people would leave aside from getting married. And uh, it was a stressful, very anxious realization that I had to go through. The first year, I was extremely anxious, anxious, will God provide all of the teachers we need? Because I knew one thing, I did not want this school to, to, to fall apart. So I had already committed. I will do what I've got to do, and that includes teaching more classes if I can't recruit them. And there were times where I taught elementary. Uh, I started off the morning and, and taught till the afternoon. And, and there were times where I taught uh, five to six classes. This year I'm teaching four classes. I will do what I have to do, but I, didn't, I knew that it wasn't setting myself up for success. There was a, there was a lot of anxiety attached to if I don't recruit I'm the one that has to do more teaching. And I can only teach so many classes. The first summer, God brought people, and I was so grateful. The second summer, I had to recruit again. God brought people, and I was so grateful. But both summers, I was anxious. Summer three comes along. God had already, for two summers, provided all the teachers we need. I was anxious again. God brought the people. And by the beginning of the school year, we had the people. You would think that by the fourth or fifth summer, my anxiety would no longer be a part of the recruitment process, right? You would think that after two or three years, I would just say, hey, God's done it twice. God's now done it three times. I'll do my part and God will do his. You would assume that a 32-year-old assistant pastor who's the principal of the school and has seen God do amazing things would now just trust God to continue doing amazing things. If you'd assume that, you'd have been wrong. The anxiety was still there. Fourth year, fifth year, sixth year, guys. I'm in my sixth year of being a principal. I am now in my mid-30s, having done this six years. And there is still high anxiety attached to, will the teachers be here when I need them? And I'm going to tell you, every single year, we had the teachers. Yes, there were years where I had to teach five classes. There was a year I had to teach elementary. But there was never a year where I, my sacrifices weren't enough. Right? Because if I need three teachers, and I recruit two, I can be the third teacher, and I've done that. If I need three teachers, and I recruit zero, I can't be three teachers. You understand? There were years where God says, Russ, you need three? I'll give you two. You're going to be the third. Russ, you need three? I'll give you two and a half, two and a part-time. You've got to be the part-time of the remaining part, portion of classes that teacher's not willing to teach. I've done that almost every year. But every year, God has always provided the staff this school needs, and I've always been able to have the ability and time to fill in what was needed, and and there was never a year where me filling in wasn't enough. Now, the last, I'm going to say this not to my honor, to my shame, because it took six years. The last four years, I have not been anxious. The last four years, it took six years, guys, but I finally realized God's got this. (laughs) Mid-State Christian Academy is God's school, not mine. I will do my part. I will fill in the gaps, but I am fully trusting and fully expecting that God will bring the staff here that he sees fit to do the job for however long he wants them to do the job. We've had teachers here a year, teachers here two years. A lot of our teachers have been here four plus years, but I've had some that only one to two years. There was one teacher who was here a summer and didn't even start the school year. They came, worked a summer day camp. At the end of the summer, they said, I'm not, I'm not teaching for you. I never really found out why. They just kind of ghosted me. I can make some assumptions. Those were during the earlier years that I wasn't making really good choices. So I'm going I'm to assume it was me and not her. But she, she didn't even start the year. But I want to tell you guys, we look at the apostles and say, what were you thinking? Christ had not long before fed five to 10,000 people. Now he's saying he wants to feed four, and you're stressing about it. Yeah, because they are like us, and we do the same thing. So it took me six years of six miracles of people being willing to work, work in New England for what I'm willing to pay them. That's a miracle in my mind that only God could perform. So I finally wised up and said, God's got this. I want to tell the story now of two years ago. In fact, the Maces are here, and it involves them. I went to recruitment two years ago. This was, this was uh, back when uh, the Maces were finishing up their, uh, well, Sam uh, was finishing up his uh, last year in college. And they have a recruitment where you have a booth and students walk around and they evaluate the various schools and determine where God might be calling them. I was at my booth for, it was, I think I think it's like a two, two days and like an evening, if I remember correctly. So uh, around two days, maybe, maybe less, it might have been two, whatever. I was at my booth standing there and over a hundred students are walking through this conference room to talk to schools and there was at least a hundred schools there hundred schools there and easily a hundred students at that time maybe even more they're walking through and only three students the entire two days talked to me one of them was a young single girl which seemed semi-interested I kind of feel she was, just felt sorry for me, so she was talking to me just to, oh, tell me about your school. She saw that no one else was stopping at my booth. I had very little um, inclination that she was going to be seriously interested. There, it, was, it was the second day, and if my memory serves, it was the evening of the second day. The, 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 the recruitment was almost done, and I'd only talked to that one girl, and I needed two teachers. And I talked to one girl that was only vaguely interested. And I was thinking, all right, there's no way I can teach both of the classes that I need. One was an elementary and one was a secondary. I could do the secondary. I can't teach the elementary. I had no one else in my head, in my heart, that I knew that could do this. But I was not anxious because this was past the six years. This was just two years ago. And God had every year provided. I just assumed, well, if he doesn't provide them here, in some way this spring or summer, someone's going to call me and say they're looking for a job. That has happened before. And I just assumed God would provide them somewhere else. We were at the end of the conference, and the Mesa's walk up, and they don't, I don't think you guys actually stopped. I think it was at the end, I thought, what do I have to lose? I introduced myself. I said, hey, you guys, what school are you looking for? What are you looking for? I think I introduced myself, and they were polite, and they stopped, and we talked. And they didn't seem, you know, rabid about the opportunity. They were polite enough to listen and consider, and they did, and the conversation resulted in another conversation And they ended up coming and working for us and fulfilling the two positions that our school needed that year. I only needed two, and God allowed me to only talk to three people, and two of which, of the three, were the ones I hired to fulfill the two positions that I needed. I've seen God do that so many times, I'm no longer anxious about the staffing that is needed for this school here at Mid-State Christian Academy. And I've learned to take my faith in God in that area and to apply it in other areas. Housing, finances, ministry. I've learned to apply it when it comes to the budget of Midstate Christian Academy. You know, budgeting for a nonprofit's really hard. You know why? Because it's not um, a set amount of money that comes in. A nonprofit has students who may show up who don't. I have students who sign up and then back out. And so your budget is constantly doing this, back and forth, back and forth. Oh, we're planning on this money. Oh, but we only have this. Oh, but new students came. Yeah, but some left. And so it's just always all over the place. Also caused me great anxiety. And I have learned God is good. God provides. And so I spend as wisely as I can and not stress about what looks like a deficit in the budget because every year we always end up with what we need and we get through the year. And I have never, to this point in 10 plus years now, had to go to the teachers and say, hey, sorry, couldn't pay you never had to do that they've always been paid and everything's always been accomplished so folks where is your faith is your faith like the apostles here after a miracle they see a similar opportunity to display faith very closely related to the first miracle and you still ask hmm what are you going to do God I'm not sure how this is going to be accomplished or have you seen God do enough where you are ready to just trust him trust him. Look at the character of God in the word of God. Look at the character of God in your own history. Look at the problems that are coming. Now put your problems and put them in the boxing ring with your God. Which one's going to win? God's going to win every time. Now I get it. You may be saying, it's not that I doubt God's ability. I just don't know ...what God's plan is... ...hey... ...then you just didn't have faith... ...that whatever God's plan is... ...is best... ...now if you're making decisions against God... ...if you're getting in God's way... ...you have only yourself to blame... ...but if you truly want what he wants... ...and you're trusting him... ...and following his directions... ...you you won't know long term... ...what his plan is... ...he doesn't often work that way... ...you just trust his character and you trust that he has a plan, and it's best, and you just keep walking towards him. So, of course, you know the story of the the 4,000. They say, uh, how are we going to do this? Christ says, how many loaves? They said, seven and a few little fishes. This is not the same as the 5,000. This is not a little boy with his lunch. It's just someone else, some random unnamed person. We don't know this person this time, has some food, and they say, this is all we got. Similar to the last one, he has them sit down, he breaks the food, and then uh, they ate, verse 37, till they were filled. They took up the extra meat and the bread, and what did they uh, fill? Seven baskets. Last time it was 12, this time it was seven. But both times, God says, I have above and beyond what you need. My power doesn't just match what you need, it's more than you need. There's leftover for another day. God's power is so much that when you experience it, it doesn't just give you what you need, it gives you enough leftover for another day to draw off of. All right, now let's go back to the last slide, guys. We're going to go to Mark. Uh, We're going to stay in Mark for a little bit, so let's go to Mark chapter 8. We'll continue on in Mark in our next slide as well. Mark chapter 8, Christ is going to be healing someone here, and it's a very unusual way in which this man is healed. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 7, excuse me. Mark chapter 7, verse 31. I saw a video one time of a pastor who wanted to illustrate this particular story. Here's what happens. Jesus Christ, in Mark chapter 7, we're told that he's at the coast of Decapolis. They bring into him a man that was deaf and had an impediment of speech. Doesn't mean he couldn't speak, but I, I would assume couldn't speak clearly. That when he spoke, you couldn't understand what he was saying. His words were slurred. His words were heavy. His speech was, was uh, uh, so thick you didn't know what he was trying to communicate. And so they said, put your hand on him. They're telling Jesus, not only does he need to be healed, we're going to tell you how to heal him. We're going to tell you the manner in which you heal him. Please heal him by placing your hand on him. Now, why would they say that? Why would they think that him placing his hand on him would bring healing? Could it be? Because that's what we often see Christ doing. He's touching them, uh, the dead. He's laying his hand on them, the others. He's, he's touching their eyes. He's touching their head. And so they're saying, we've seen you do this before. We know you can heal, and we know how you heal. We know the formula. The formula is you touch them and they get healed. So Christ, we want this man healed, so touch him so he can be healed. Now, I don't know Christ's intentions, but Christ does not heal this man in the manner that he normally does or in the manner that they request. I don't know if his intentions was to show them you're not the boss of me. <laughs> I don't know if his intentions was, no, you don't tell God how to do it. I'll show you it could be done in a variety of ways. I don't know if Christ would have healed this guy in the manner in which he does, regardless of what was expected of him. All I know is what was said and what Christ does, and they don't match. What was said for him to do and what he did are two different things. So what does he do? Verse 33, he put his fingers in the guy's ears. Christ never, in any other situation, does this. <laughs> this is the only miracle where he's given the guy, I don't know if he's a wet willy, he's, giving, he's putting his fingers in the guy's ears. No other miracle that happens. People probably a little floored on that one, wondering what is going on. <laughs> now, the spitting thing, he's done before. Christ in the past has spit on the mud, and then with, with the spit mingled with mud, uh, rubbed it on the man's eyes and the man could see. So he has spit before, but not in this manner. There's no mud involved this time. He puts his fingers in the guy's ears. Then he spits on his fingers and has the guy open his mouth and he puts his fingers with spit on him on the guy's tongue. So I, said I, ha- I saw a video of a pastor illustrating this. It was a big fail. This pastor, I think, thought he was trying to be cool, but he hip, trying to, you know, gain. the. Uh, you have my attention to me just explaining it to you. This guy wanted to go the extra mile. So he called a member up. We, I don't know from the video if the member knew what he was getting into. The member took it very well. I can only assume he was warned because this guy took it like a champ. So he calls a man up on stage, sits him down, reads this passage, talks about the passage, and then spits in his hands. He doesn't just spit. He, like, hawks a loogie. And then, you know, lets it, like, drop into his hands. And, like, he's trying to make a big deal out of it. Then he rubs it all over the guy's face and beard. I don't think this pastor accomplished whatever it is he was hoping to accomplish other than a shock value. Because I can tell you, people at that point weren't thinking about the awesome glory of God. They were just disgusted. So why am I telling you this? The issue was not that this man was in some way reflecting Christ the issue was this man doesn't understand we live in the 21st century we don't live in the first century we live in the United States we don't live in Israel how we do things today is not how things were done then and when God wants us to reflect him and illustrate him that doesn't mean do everything culturally as he did then you ever been to a church where they washed your feet I never have If I was and I was told to take my shoes off, I don't think I would stay. I would feel a little grossed out, and I would, knowing my theology, would say, this is not necessary. You guys are making a bigger deal out of this than is needed. I have no intention of going playing along with your games. But there are people who sincerely believe that to truly reflect the servant's heart of Christ they wash each other's feet. Similar to the Lord's Supper. I don't know if it's done every week in these churches. I believe it's kind of like, you know, maybe a few months or special occasions. Like the Lord's Supper, where all of the men are on one side and the, the leaders, deacons, elders, pastors, the, the, all the men take their shoes off in the service and their feet are washed. And all the women are washed by the wives of, of the, or spiritual leaders themselves or the single women, whatever, on, this, on, on one side. That is how I understand it to happen. So I don't, I'm not implying anything inappropriate, immoral about this. It's just purely unnecessary. These folks have the idea that we, if we're going to reflect Scripture, we have to reflect first century Judeo-Christian Scripture. Well, if that was really true, then put on some robes and wear some sandals. If that was really true, then all the men should have not not the the close-to-the-face beard. Like, for a Jew, the bigger the better. Like, it should be gross. Sam's over there going, yes, hmm." (laughs) I I saw that, man. As soon as I said that, you went for the beard, Sam. So you should have it really far out there. It should not be like, you know, the the modern close-shaven. If you really want to reflect the first-century Christians of the church, then we need to change our culture, to reflect the culture of the first century churches. That's unnecessary. We as Christians are not called to carry on the first century culture to millenniums, right? Uh, to, To thousands of years. That is not the calling of the Christian faith. The calling of the Christian faith is to reflect the truth and the love of Christ, who was the founder of the first century church, not the culture he chose to arrive in at that time. So the issue with this pastor, he's doing exactly as Christ did, but we live in a different time and a different culture, and it's really nasty to do that. You say, well, Pastor Russ, wasn't it really nasty to do it then? There's a lot of things they did first century in Israel that we would say are really nasty, and they just, they just took it. I'm not saying it would be appropriate for Christ to go around spitting on people in any culture, but in that culture, I just, I'm just i telling you, it was not as like, ooh, that's nasty, ooh, you know, look, they didn't know germs, they didn't know all these things, it, that didn't affect their mind and their emotions in the way it would for us today. Christ is not being nasty here, and it would not have been perceived as nasty, and he, did. he wasn't wiping it all over the guy's face like that pastor was on the video, some of you are going to YouTube that video now, just YouTube pastor spits in hands and wipes man's face, you'll probably find it. He's not even doing that. That pastor went even further than Christ did. So don't think that Christ was doing this for the shock value. I don't believe that. That's below Christ. A shock value is below my God. He doesn't need shock value. I think Christ is showing us throughout the Gospels, you're going to find, that many times he has and will do miracles and perform the miracles in a similar way. But many times they're much different. The way he performs miracles doesn't look the same as previous times. He performed a similar miracle. I think it's not shock value. It's God saying, there is no magical formula, do this and do this and everything happens exactly right. No. There is me. The power is not in the process. The power is in Christ. And yet... When looking at faith healers, so-called, when looking at people who claim to have the power, watch them and you will notice something, a pattern. They will often do what they do, if not exactly the same way, very closely the same way. Because in their heads, and they've they've deceived others into thinking the same thing, the, the powers and the pattern that if I do this, that will happen. And Christ is saying, no, we're going to do this and we're going to do this. And then something amazing will happen because it wasn't the this and the this. It was the this, Christ, right? Christ was the one who was amazing. So he can uh, speak. He can hear. We're told that uh, verse 34, looking up to heaven, he sighed and saith, Apoptha, that is, be opened and straightway his ears were opened and the string of his tongue was loosed and he spake plain. He charged them that they should tell no man, but the more he charged them so much, the more a great deal they published it. Why do you think, and I've asked this question before because he's, he's said this multiple times. Why do you think Christ said, do not tell anyone of this miracle? Scott, you got a reason? Do you remember the reason I gave last time? Last time, after he said that, they told people, When he was working with someone and and teaching, what happened to the house that he was in? It was overflowing with people. But they weren't there to hear truth. They were there because of the excitement of the miracle. They all wanted more of the same. I don't believe Christ is trying to hide his glory. Christ is recognizing that if you make a big deal of my miracles, that's why people will come. My miracles. I don't want them to come to me for my miracles. I want them to come to me for truth. Spread the truth. Tell about the truth. He sends the apostles two by two to do miracles, yes, but to spread truth. That there was, there, there was not a, a hindrance on. The hindrance was on, don't be telling people about my miracles, otherwise that's the only reason they'll follow me. And yet, unlike Christ, when God does amazing things in the church, you know what a lot of the pastors do and the spiritual leaders? Go tell everyone of the miracles that were here. What do they want? They want people to come to that church to see what? Supposedly, they're hoping more miracles. That is the opposite of Christ's heart. Christ didn't say, come and see my miracles. He was saying, come and hear my truth. And yet when God does do a miracle, we in our human condition of pride think, let's draw the people in from the miracles. Well, then why would they be there? For the miracles. And when the miracles cease, what will happen? Most will leave because they were there for miracles. A lot of churches, they say, come here for the experience. We will provide an experience for you with our music, uh, with the way the pastor presents the message. With, from the moment you walk in that door, church is an experience. You'll be greeted. Uh, you'll be handed a cappuccino. I'm not, Nothing wrong with cappuccinos. Nothing wrong with the good uh, worship service. That is not my point. My point is... Their focus is from the moment you walk in the door giving you an experience, kind of like Disney World. Do you know, if you've been to Disney World, their goal is from the moment you enter their property, the experience begins with the large sign, right? And uh, they got the, the characters there. And then as you drive through all of the hotels and the property and the beauty, it's an experience just viewing. And then when you get on the property, when you actually arrive at the amusement park, whatever one you choose, the, con- the experience continues fivefold. And uh, people at the front, you, you know, so they're greeting, right? They're saying hi, and they're saying hi to the kids, and hello, uh, princess. And I don't think they're calling them princess and prince anymore, but whatever they call them. You know, they're greeting people, and they want everything, every minute to be an experience for you. They are selling you an experience. Why? Because they're smart. Disney is very smart. You may not like their morals. I don't. You may not like their business model. I'm not a fan of it, but I'll tell you what. They're not stupid. They understand that experience sells, and you become addicted to it, and you'll come back for more. And you will pay what you need to to get more of that experience. And that is why they're doing so well in spite of the ticket prices. Well, a lot of pastors have figured that out too. A lot of so-called spiritual leaders have figured out The high price tag of an experience. So they give you the experience at church, but this is church. So what do they have to claim about the experience? That it's a spiritual one. They can't claim it's an entertainment experience. Otherwise, you're you're up there competing with Disney. You're not going to win that one. So they must claim a spiritual experience is taking place. They have to claim that. Uh, indirectly, directly. And so everything they do, they're going to say, God is with us. The Holy Spirit is here. Oh, this this is, God is touching your heart. Do you feel God's hand? Do you feel the heartbeat of God, right? They're pushing this idea on you that everything you experience is coming from God. I'm not saying that's not happening. I'm not saying God isn't touching people's hearts. I wouldn't know. I'm not at these churches to know what is or is not. I'm just saying that's what they're saying. They're all saying that. And I can tell you, they're not all right. What they're doing is designing everything from the moment you walk in to the moment you leave to create an experience and then claiming that it's God doing it. They're deceiving you. When I say they, I'm not saying all churches, all pastors. I'm saying a lot are doing this. And so why are people there? What are they coming back for? The experience. They're coming back for the experience. And you know what's interesting about experiences? Experiences do affect us. They encourage us. They they, they uh, even put like fire in our tanks where it gives us another energy to move forward and keep going. But experiences, when claiming to be something else, are now dangerous because they include deception. So if the experience is claiming to be exactly what it is and accomplishes exactly what it claims to accomplish, and there's no deception involved, you can, with your eyes open, say, Do, am I willing to pay for that experience and what it gives me? Right? The problem is a lot of churches can't claim that. They have to claim it's coming from God, whether it is or is not. So now the experience includes deception, and deception is never healthy or beneficial to the Christian. So a lot of Christians are deceived thinking I met God today. No, you didn't. You just walked into a building where the leadership have a really good idea of how to give you a good experience. Oh, I'm right with God. No, you're not. Because having an experience in a building who does things really well doesn't mean you are connected with God, doesn't mean God is pleased with you. And so this deception is keeping them from what? A real connection with God. And because they've experienced so many times what this church claims is from God, and have never actually truly experienced God, they don't know any better, what's going to happen? Well, when that church falters, or in that experience, they become numb to that experience. What are they going to do? Go somewhere else and look for a bigger, better experience. And that's what a lot of Christians do. They're looking for churches, but what I'll tell you they're really looking for is a bigger, better experience. That's what they're looking for. And that's what a lot of churches are selling. They're selling experiences. I'm not saying you shouldn't have an experience when you worship. I'm just saying if you do, it needs to come from God, not me, not the pastoral staff, not the way in which we present ourselves. That should not be the experience. It needs to be Christ. And if it is, I shouldn't have to tell you that. You should know. Because once you've really connected with God and you know what that experience is like, the other stuff is very clearly a fake. I'm not saying churches who have lights and churches whose music is different than ours is fake. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you can't experience God there. I'm just saying when the leadership is pushing deception and selling experience, you're you're on thin ice. So Christ here wants people to recognize it's not the experience, it's not the, the way, the manner in which we did things, it was me, it was Christ that is amazing. And when we go to church, it's not that a church has to look exactly like another church for Christ to be amazing there. It's not that the music has to sound exactly like another church for you to see the amazing awesomeness of Christ. Christ does things differently for different people in different ways, and that's okay. All right, let's move on to uh, next part of Mark now. And uh, what's the next slide, guys? Move on for me, please. Keep going. There you are. Okay, good. Mark chapter 8. Let's look at verse 10. And straightway, he entered into, we're told, a ship with his disciples, came into the parts of Dalmanthua. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. <laughs> I mean we're not just talking like an outward side, we're talking like literally his spirit sunk hearing from these men, these politicians, right? These spiritual politicians. And he says, why does this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto thee, unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. Now, we are told in another passage Christ talks about a sign, and he says, the only sign you're gonna get is the sign of Jonas, the sign of being dead three days and coming back from the dead. And that's, who's that? Who's, who's going to perform that sign? Christ. He says, so those of you asking for a sign, I'm not going to give it just because he asked, but whole, the whole world will get at least one more visible sign of my power, and it will be my resurrection. So these Pharisees are demanding for Christ to prove who he is. How many miracles has Christ done up to this point? Countless. More than I've even shown you, because... The Gospels don't give us all of the miracles. And sometimes it gives a verse where it says, and he did many miracles, and there was a bunch of miracles, and he he went around doing miracles, plural. So we don't know how many, but there was a bunch. There was no reason for these Pharisees to say, give me a sign, Christ has performed as many as he needs. So what is the point of these Pharisees and their request? What are they trying to do? They're trying to get Christ to make a mistake, because here's the thing about trying to destroy someone. It is easier to destroy someone who says and does a lot than it is for someone who says very little and does very little. Now, you can love President Biden. You can hate President Biden. I got to tell you, that was one of the smartest presidential election strategies I've seen in my lifetime. The man and his team took full advantage of the pandemic, and President Biden... At that time, before he was president, chose to say very little and do very little, and it worked. I'm not here to debate what fraud may or may not have taken place and your opinions on that. He obviously, whether you believe he got all the votes or not, got a lot of votes, obviously. And there was multiple reasons, but one of them was his strategy. He kept his mouth shut and didn't leave his house very often. It worked. These Pharisees, although are fools, aren't stupid. Christ has already done miracles. It's not like they're thinking Christ can't do miracles. They know that he can. They're just hoping that if they get him to keep doing more things and saying more things, at some point, they'll find something they can attack him with that will stick. Obviously, we know more than the Pharisees. Christ is God. You can't attack God and win. They don't believe Christ is God. Therefore, they believed Christ was fallible, Christ was prone to error, and they thought if we just wait long enough, eventually Christ will destroy himself. That was what they believed because they did not know Christ to be God. We're not God. So I would advise you to recognize this very effective strategy of the other side. The other side is very smart They will let you talk as much as you want, and they will take all the words you said and use them against you. They will let you do what you want and then use your actions against you. If you ever feel like you are surrounded by people who are there to destroy you, be very, very cautious on what you say and do. And I would encourage you to only say what is necessary Because chances are, no matter what you say, you're not going to change the minds of these people. No matter what you do, you're not going to change the minds of these people. I have always wondered, what was the point of pastors to go onto national television to be interviewed by someone who totally disagrees with truth, the word of God, and Christianity as a whole? They are literally trying to get you on live television for half an hour to say as many things as you can so it can be recorded for all time and they can use it against you. I'm not saying pastors shouldn't be scared of a public forum, but a public forum with your enemy, that's not a public forum, that's a massacre, as is often the case when you see these pastors getting on these interviews. (laughs) All right, one more slide, guys, and we'll be done for tonight. We're going to move on now to uh, Mark. We're still in Mark chapter 8. Let's look at verse 13. So after Christ has his experience with the Pharisees, he, he leaves them, enters the ship, again departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying it is because we have no bread. And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, why reason ye because ye have no bread? He refers to the miracles of the bread. He refers to the miracles of, of the healings of the eyes and the ear. And he talks about the feeding the 5,000 in verse 19. And he said there was plenty left over. And then in verse 20, he uh, says 7, 000, uh, seven, when there was seven among 4,000, seven baskets left over among 4,000. He says, why do you think... I'm warning you to take food. I can feed you. I can give you food. It's something else. And then they connected the dots and said, "Oh, he's talking about the teaching of the Pharisees." So leaven when placed placed in bread gives it that, you know, fluffiness, allows it to rise and and so you're not dealing with flatbed, right? Cuz unleavened bread is just like crackers, flatbread crackers, which is why when we have Lord's Supper, you're you're eating unleavened crackers. But the the leaven of the bread just a little bit permeates the bread. And You don't need a lot of it. And Christ is referring to the the Pharisees that just a little bit of deception is enough to destroy everything that they're saying. You don't need a lot of lies and deception to destroy the teaching. And yet, I've known pastors who want to wait it out when when someone in the church is, is speaking something that is not true. I knew a pastor one time who had a a Sunday school teacher. It was brought to his attention that there were deception and lies being taught in the Sunday school. This was brought to his attention. And he just kind of waited it out. And I I guess he was hoping the guy would leave or he was hoping the guy would change his mind. I don't know what he was hoping for. But he didn't address it. And so the people, the, the guys that were going to this Sunday school, kept hearing whatever lies this person was telling them. When I see Christ, I don't see him tolerating lies and deception. I see the opposite. When I see Christ, I see him coming down hardest, not on the sins of the flesh. He doesn't come down very hard on, on adultery, promiscuity, immorality, nearly as hard as we as Christians would think he did, right, or would. The prostitutes came to Jesus and Jesus had open arms, not to enable them, not to say keep, you know, sleeping around with men but to say, I've got a better life for you, All right? The tax collectors, the thieves came to Jesus and said, I've got a better way for you. And then these thieves gave the money back. You know who he called out as hypocrites? You know who he, he, who, who he belittled publicly? It wasn't the prostitutes and it wasn't the thieves. It was the liars. The religious liars got the hardest side of Christ than anyone else. Not just liars as a, as a whole. Generally speaking, those who used religion for their own gain and lied but claimed it was God's word. They got the worst of it from Christ. Deception and lies. When Christ whipped two on two occasions, one at the beginning of his ministry, one at the end. When he came to the temple and he whipped out the money changers. What what is he calling them? He's calling them thieves. But ultimately, they were misusing, abusing what was supposed to be a worshipful experience and lying to the people about what they were doing. They were lying to the people and deceiving the people uh, through the money changing and through what was going on to, to, get, to, to use religion for their own gain. And then he physically whipped and drove them out of the temple. And so I'm going to end with this if god's church has someone speaking lies that should cause you to have righteous anger more than my opinion than any other sin from what i see in scripture we should not have righteous anger nearly as much for those struggling with pornography addiction and those struggling with, uh, with theft and, you know, they, they like to take things. I mean, we should deal with these things. We should not enable these people. They need to be addressed. They need to be helped. But that should not cause and stir up righteous anger in us. These people have issues and they need help. Those who are lying and deceiving, they don't want help. They want to use and abuse God's people for their own gain. Power money, control, and Christ is not having any of it. So why do we as Christians put up with this so much? Why do we allow it to run rampant in the church, lying and deceiving from the pulpit? Pastors saying something that even someone who's only been saved five years knows and says, that can't be true, that's not true. And it's ignored, it's allowed at every level in some churches, in many churches at some level. Never let it be said for Meriden Hills, guys. I'm not saying we don't allow people to come here and hear the truth who are liars, but we don't give them a platform. We don't give them an opportunity to teach others their lies, whether in a formal setting, a Bible study, or in an informal setting where they walk around in the sanctuary or in the lobby and, and try to pass out literature and try to tell people verbally their lies we need to address it i promise you that i will and i can say that because i have i have addressed it i've had people they've left On one occasion it was a formal teaching situation not at the school at the church and, and this was years and years ago before many of you were even here and on another occasion it wasn't informal. The person was walking around the church handing out literature and passing out booklets and and telling people about uh, deception and lies. On both occasions they were told to leave. We will not, as Christians, put up with deception here where God's people are opening their hearts up to truth. And I encourage you to rethink in your home how that looks. I understand entertainment. Entertainment is to to entertain. And if you take... What I'm saying you, to, the, to, the, to the depths like you'll never leave your home and never let anything inside your home because the world is full of lies and deception. Like a liar can come here and worship is one thing, giving them a platform to speak is something altogether different. In your home, if you live in 21st century United States of America, you're going to have lies that surround you. You walk in the store, the magazines are lying to you, right? Uh, you, you, you walk into uh, a, a crowded setting, and you might hear people saying, and it's things and they're going to lie. You watch a movie, and there will be lies on the entertainment. Uh, there is difference between lies being present around you and giving lies a platform to educate and to instruct and to teach. And I challenge you to rethink what those look like and what are allowed in your home, especially for any children in your home. Do not give liars a platform with your children. If you do, don't be shocked when your children believe lies. Thank you for joining us. We'll continue our series on the life of Christ next Wednesday, and I hope to see you then.